The transit south reads as a painfully slow experience, dense fogs causing a worrying separation, and the William Scoresby, mothballed for several years of the war, not fielding its full faculties, the depth sounder among the articles falling unserviceable during the ship's fallow period. With the weather improving and the ships back in contact, Ma led a shore party to erect a British Crown land sign on the shore of Hughes Bay, useless as a base site, but territorially reassuringly continental. The signage comprised a three-foot by four-foot enamelled metal plaque showing the Union Jack, mounted in Ashton's wooden frame mount, painted up with British Crown Land, for the benefit of those able to read, but unfamiliar with the crosses of Saints Andrew, George and Patrick. These were deemed sufficient, to quote Mackenzie, to remain eternally, or at least until the next hurricane, and deemed sufficient and inspire feelings of reverence and awe in the breasts of all two-legged upright creatures, of whatever nationality, who haply might waddle within sight of them from time to time. And with that, I have a new crush. A cynic who can turn a phrase, identify cryptograms, and make with the funny. The shore party couldn't get ashore due to the effects of swell on the almost sheer waterline rock face. The enamelled tin had to wait. Its long time out of commission also dented the William Scoresby's fuel efficiency, and Ma faced pressing questions about where to establish base A, as the ship's fuel reserves dwindled. There wasn't really much option. Port Lockroy would have to do. Discovered by Charcot and used by the British Grahamland expedition as a staging point for the Doggos, also carried south aboard the William Scoresby, Lockroy stood as a known quantity in a sea of uncertainties. It featured enough flat ground above spring high water to receive the huts. It lay in a backwater off the Numaya Channel, shielded from much of the worst excesses of weather and ice movements by Vinca Island. Digression. Many scientific stations in Antarctica are where they are because ease of access takes priority over meteorological representativeness. Port Lockroy's local meteorological factors make it a poor spot from which to try to interpret larger-scale meteorological patterns and effects. So sometimes it's a stretch to try to argue that a particular site's occupation automatically holds merit because it generated data. Data only holds worth if it helps you model something by which we can find shortcuts or efficiencies. Modelling weather based on metobs from a site selected, in part, because mountains sheltered it and made landing there easy, offers granularity at the expense of generality, like trying to model Pacific currents by measuring flows in the Timor Strait. The systems are connected, but absent other measurements, the specificity of the data makes it irrelevant to the questions that are worth answering first. Digression over. Factory whalers moored up at Port Lockroy from time to time in near-perfect safety. The whalers' flensing plan remained in place on the shore, the bones of their catch littering Goodyear Island and Jugla Point. This historically compelling evidence of safe water served to convince Captain Pitt and Director Roberts that the Fitzroy could safely get in, unload and get back out again. Ma felt reservations about the site. The Gurlash Strait's history of patchy winter freezing made sledging access to the peninsula uncertain. Already weighed down by his unaccustomed leadership responsibilities, foregoing Hope Bay for this second, borderline third, prize site, further ramped up the mental pressure on the Scotsman, but his hands were tied by conditions and fuel. 
shame and frustration at having failed to keep to his orders to the letter wound up a resolve in Ma that Port Lockroy stand only as a temporary base, intending to move the expedition to Hope Bay the following summer. The Fitzroy moored up to the existing bollards and dropped its bower anchors to hold position. The William Scoresby tied up alongside. Once ashore, Ma found the standard Argentine brass cylinder and collapsed sign proclaiming Argentine sovereignty left behind by the crew of the Primero de Mayo in 1943, again handing them to Melchio for removal to Stanley while Taylor set to surveying the ground for the huts. The two-scow barge and motor launch arrangement once more served to take materials and provisions ashore. The more obvious channel facing the bay at Goodyear Island is deceptively shallow at its mouth, as I once found out to my propeller-rattling chagrin, and the motor launch towed its load between Goodyear Island and Jugler Point, around to the deeper water at the western side of the island. Besides a landing stage formed of a narrow shelf in the rock, the shoreline there is steep, and getting the loads up to the flat space 12 metres above the high tide proved the chore that the voyage-softened expedition has found taxing, earning the slope the name Heartbreak Hill. All hands bent to the task, while young Dawn Hooley melted ice and kept the tea on like an outright champion. Concrete foundations for the hut and radio masts and associated guy-wise went down, Mackenzie recording in The Secret South, the overly liberal use of stones to pad the volume of concrete out due to the disparagingly thirsty formwork, which never seemed to fill up. I'll come back to the FIDS concrete recipe in future episodes. The prefabricated hut, a mass-produced effort pumped out by Bolton Paul after their aircraft designs fell by the wartime wayside, required a lot of gadgeting in the build. The kit set markings on the components didn't match the instructions, and Chippy Ashton made nails do the work previously earmarked for cleverly designed mortise joints. By the 14th of February, the walls and roof trusses took shape. On the 15th, the gen set came to life, allowing Farrington to broadcast his first carefully encrypted message to Lather at Base B. Wartime regulations required radio transmissions be kept to a minimum and sent coded, I think in this instance by a one-time pad a laborious but practically unbreakable encryption process involving disposable pads of exactly the same randomly generated numbers at each end of the communication. Farrington also served as expedition censor, editing letters processed aboard the Fitzroy in the evenings as the hut took shape. The weather held fine throughout the construction phase, and with the hut sound to receive residents, the ships departed on the 17th of February. Construction continued, the hut being weatherproof, but far from fitted out. The floor and fixtures needed to go in, and the windows needed sealing. An anthracite fueled range for Berry to work at needed assembly, and its flue plumbed in. 36 tonnes of anthracite and a smaller quantity of bituminous coal to get the anthracite going, going ashore to run through its firebox. Everyone slept in the communal space on the cots brought from Deception Island while construction continued. Ma ordered the hut receive storm guys, one and a half inch wire stays, crisscrossing the roof and dogged into crevices in the rocks. Some of his colleagues thought this overkill, but Ma knew the winter conditions the site might face, and his probity later received vindication. Bransfield House, as they called their new home, began expanding into two extensions on the 22nd, 
one serving as the workshop and the other as the mess and dormitory. This latter space received partitions to make five cabins, each housing a bunk bed commandeered from Deception Island and receiving two occupants, other than Mars, which also served as the leader's office. The dorm proved hard to heat due to fumes building up in periods of poor weather, when the hut couldn't be aired out, and condensation from exhalations and combustion tended to fall from the ceiling as a light rain whenever wind gusts shook the structure. This latter problem Ashton and Davies partly alleviated with an extra external layer of roofing materials sandwiching further insulation in the form of craft paper. Tom Berry broke his leg while performing a fan dance one evening, which is a very British sentence to have to write and say. Dr. Back set the limb in plaster and confined the cook to bed, Blair taking up duties at the coal range. The Stevenson screen went up at the island's peak, not an especially impressive summit, a few dozen metres from the hut. Back started the meteorological series on the 1st of March, taking six daily observations at three hourly intervals. Dr. Back at Port Lockroy and Hawkins at Deception Island found difficulty keeping an alarm clock serviceable at the low temperatures and applied great ingenuity in arranging alarms to keep the Met-OBS on track. Hawkins rigged an ingenious Heath Robinson device using materials scrounged from the Hectoria Whaling Company machine shop, where Dr. Back tinkered with his clock, eventually dismantling it and reassembling it with all the components liberally lubricated with graphite and serving well enough. Coding the Met-OBS took a lot of time and concentration, and Ma praised Farrington's work ethic and precision in the task. On March 19th, the William Scoresby returned, delivering rubberoid canvas to better waterproof the hut roof, and fled from Deception Island for a final meeting with Ma to discuss the program for the coming winter and to have a quick geologize, base A having no dedicated rock looker at her. Newspapers and mail from Stanley received warm welcome, as did an extra pair of hands staying on, Governor Cardinal having recruited John Blythe in Stanley after Ma expressed concerns about the party falling short-handed in the face of the proposed work schedule. On the 22nd of March, Captain Marchese carried Ma, Back, Blair, Mackenzie and Ashton across the Gurlash Strait to the mainland coast. Ma selected the rocky spire of Cape Renard as a suitable landing site. Rowed ashore in the scow, Ma performed acrobatics to stick a landing on the algae-slicked rock, carrying the boat's painter. Once on a shore footing, he drew the boat to the rock and allowed his colleagues to set foot in a more dignified manner and to take part in the territoriality that lay behind the excursion. One of the enamelled tin Union Jacks stood proudly erect in its wooden frame after some hard yards with the pickaxe and shovel. The voyage back to Bransfield House saw Ma's warm saltwater bath interrupted when the William Scoresby went clang on a subsurface rock. The watch spotted the threat early enough to put the engine astern, but the unpleasant noise of a steel hull on the hard and the associated violence and vibration saw the naked and dripping Scotsman join the officers on the bridge to see if they were going doomed. They weren't, and I hope he returned to his relaxing soak. The man had a lot on his mind, and the Bransfield bathtub still lay a month from installation. The Port Lockroy post office opened for business while the scores be moored up, and the ship's crew took advantage of the opportunity to mail letters and parcels home with Falkland Island stamps 
cancelled by Berry, sitting propped up in his bed, with a unique franking, Grahamland, dependency of. Those with philatelist friends filled parcels with specimens of shoreline geology, the increased weight requiring more postage and therefore providing greater philatelic delight at the far end of the rock's journey. Stephen Hanelsey, whose books on Antarctic history are a delight overall, but especially useful to this episode in the form of Operation Tabarin, Britain's Secret Wartime Expedition to Antarctica, 1944-46, noted that where the expedition's movements, goals, transmissions and correspondence received a cloak of secrecy and, where possible, encryption and censorship, the franking told anyone whose hand the letters and parcels passed through that Britain was extending its physical presence into Antarctica. As the mail passed through Montevideo on its way to the rest of the world, word probably reached interested Argentine parties. The Foreign Office didn't like this because they didn't want to promote confrontation, either on the ground or, even worse, in the eyes of the bureaucrats, through diplomatic channels that might lead to one of their superiors pinning the problem on them in order to save their own bacon from whatever repercussions might arise. But the Colonial Office insisted that the Postal Office should operate that blatantly as a mark of British administration in the region. Super-secret activities geared to advertise to the world the fact of British sovereignty over rocks and ice. Small wonder Ma felt driven to distraction by his role. A Nissan pattern hut, the Canadian-designed, steel-framed and corrugated iron-skinned half-cylinder on its side, used extensively by Commonwealth nations during and after the Second World War, and adapted by US military services to the concept pattern, took shape near the main hut. The framing blew over during construction, shearing all the bolts and forcing a lot of improvisation and gadgeting in the second attempt. Once the corrugated iron skinning went on, Gwyn Davies began organising the stores in his care, finally getting them out of the tarpaulin and ice seven-layer burrito arrangement he regularly crawled into any time someone wanted something. Nissan huts offer a big internal volume relative to the weight of materials required, so Davies got ample space for the stores, but the corrugated iron skinning, knocked about in transit and construction, let snow in like a colander, making his charge a particularly drafty example of an already notoriously drafty design. During blizzards, Davies tried to patch the holes letting the dust find snow crystals inside as a series of constant streams, looking like leaks in a steam pipe, with plugs of paper and cloth. These blew out of their holes almost immediately, so he worked up a paste of flour and water to use as putty. This froze solid before application, so he spat at the holes, I like to think as a final gesture of frustrated defiance. The saliva, when on target, snap froze over the apertures, and Davies completed sealing his storehouse with his personal recipe gland-warmed mouth spackle. The William Scoresby paid a final visit to Goodyear Island on the 17th of April, bringing more newspapers, mail, and flat for another discussion with Ma. Interestingly, to me at least, Mackenzie's book, The Secret South, is the first I've read that mentions the flurry of viruses and colds that newly isolated Australnauts often experience as close quarters living and tight work schedules push the boundaries of personal hygiene and the limits of personal space, well inside the sort of social distancing everyone on the planet so recently realised as valuable other than those numpties still claiming the worldwide social, economic and mental health price of the coronavirus pandemic is an elaborate scam to... A, a, achieve something 
some amorphous goal they can't quite put their finger on, but which they're sure is the case because they've known their own body and... Oh. They caught the coronavirus and spread it throughout their circle like hypermobile, aerosolized typhoid Marys. Catching and dealing with each other's minor ailments sees most wintering parties enjoy infection-free base life until their replacements arrive carrying a new suite of viruses evolved in the far larger agar plate that is the home nation. Base medicos speak of the crud, a catch-all for the suite of colds, sore throats and tummy bugs that rapidly sweep through the close-knit, close-quarters communities that they tend to when flights commence or shipping routes open. Sometimes you can hear them capitalise the words as though the crud, featured in a film by John Carpenter. Brantsfield House received a third extension, housing storage space, all-weather toilets and a bathroom to receive the bathtub. Naval parlance ruled at Brantsfield House, so I'll use the term head to refer to the two seats over two buckets on a sled arrangement that served to take the excreta. Towing this sled to the shore and chipping out the frozen contents with an ice axe, a task the wise only took to with goggles and muffler in place, proved no one's idea of a good time, but the indoorness of the new seating received rave reviews. I'll mention here that Ma took his turn at all tasks. Where 30 years previously Victor Campbell enforced naval separation of officers and other ranks so assiduously that he maintained wardroom mestec distinctions in the snow cave at Inexpressible Island for the eight months he and his team spent chewing blubber and shitting themselves, Ma didn't want anyone to feel the tasks he asked of them lay below his own regal bearing. That's not surprising given Ma's background as a mariner and a researcher, but it's not standard military form and would have stood as a mark against further promotion outside of the wartime, Antarctic circumstances. I like him for that lead from the front instinct, though. That's not to say he wasn't a jerk, just he wasn't an official jerk on a military footing. Ma, while respected for his conscientious drive and attention to detail, came in for criticism from some quarters as inefficient and unwilling to seek or accept suggestion of easier paths to a common goal. Dr. Back noted that if there were two ways to do a job, he would choose the hard one. Ma's companions began to refer to the Scotsman as the boss, though I'm not sure if they took this familiarity and ribbing reference to Ma's first connection to the Antarctic, Sir Ernest Shackleton, to his face, or if this was akin to the Duck's Ips label applied to Sir Douglas Mawson. Certainly I don't think Farrington ever used his own epithet, the Führer, within earshot of his leader. The final flourish on the shitters brought the construction phase to an end toward the end of April and resulted in a far bigger hut than those of many previous expeditions built for a similar number of occupants. Ma felt the opulence lent an extra soupçon of credibility to their presence. British interests were here in no small manner and here to stay, maybe. Bransfield House still stands on the site, though there's a degree of the ship of Theseus to the present structure having undergone a lot of renovation, extension, retasking and repair over the years. Cosy as, though. As with British existence everywhere it's carried itself since the 17th century, the residents made Base A cosy with tea, small rugs and other niceties from home. Much as I rag on them, the Brits are good at making a space feel like home. I guess an empire the size they once fielded gives you a lot of practice. 
Sometimes the tea wasn't up to Empire standards, as Base A sourced its water from the glacial ice floating in the bay, and replenished regularly by the nearby active glacier termini. Occasionally, someone mistook sea ice for glacial ice, and wasted time and energy retrieving and melting the saltier version, resulting in an undrinkable brew, necessitating the process start over from scratch, because hot beverages are the fuel that gets Antarctic work done. On the 24th of April, Britain formally acknowledged the expedition presence in Antarctica, with an article published in the Times, and as a report in a broadcast by the BBC Overseas Service. The location didn't receive a mention, but the output let everyone paying attention, which was every national intelligence service in the world at that point in 20th century history, that Britain was back in the South and intended kicking on there for the foreseeable. Survey work started in May with Taylor, Mackenzie and Davies working a plane table, rangefinder and panoramic camera at Alice Creek. Toward the end of the month, Taylor and Mac spent two evenings taking angles on stars with the theodolite to locate Goodyear Island more precisely than any previous effort, forming the datum to which all further survey work related. Goodyear Island lies north of 65 degrees south, and so doesn't receive the same sea-level horizon final winter sunset as affects anywhere further south than the Antarctic Circle, lying at 66 degrees, 33 minutes, 48 seconds south. The high mountains ringing the site do lead to a two-month-long period without direct sunlight, leading to short days with a four-hour twilight spanning midday. The Base A residence lost sight of the sun on the 25th of May. Winter entertainment ran to the usual reading, card games, dramatic recitations and dramatic overuse of the gramophone with only 150 discs to spin on it. Blythe played a piano accordion and Ma the mouth organ to supplement regular sing-alongs. Heavy blizzards forced long periods shut indoors, and when the weather eased, the short, dull, grey-lit days gradually wore on the spirits of the Bransfield House residents. Ma kept everyone busy with sledging preparations on top of the day-to-day household chores and the recording of scientific observation series. The short run-up to the expedition precluded time to fabricate, assemble or test field equipment, and Brownsfield House became a hive of activity as sledges took shape from their component parts, and carefully weighed sledging rations went into their bags, and thence into the boxes and sledge tanks. Seal skin mucklucks, sourced from an Inuit community, required work to regain their original shape and malleability. Someone read in a copy of The Polar Record, that Inuit overcome the stiffness the material acquires after a long period out of use by chewing on it, and some members of the team began applying this method, only later finding out what the Inuit used to tan the seal hides in the first place. Ashton set himself to work bending the skis back into shape. Transit through the heat and humidity of the tropics, followed shortly after by the cold dryness of their new surrounds, saw the wood warp and the skis bend out of their original shape. He made a press and applied steam to restore their rocker and camber sealing them with a mix of Stockholm tar and linseed oil. Davies spent time running the primer stoves and calculating output versus weight of fuel to ensure an equitable balance between food and paraffin. I've mentioned the care that went into calculating the calorific content, protein quotient 
and the careful measuring of sledging rations in giving coverage to previous expeditions, but I don't think I've ever addressed how important those calculations and measurements were. Sledges working at the outer edge of human effort might crave extra food, but you don't want to give it to them to haul. As with physicians seeking the minimum effective dose at which to provide a medicine in order to null the worst of the side effects, the extra weight of extra food beyond that required to maintain sustained effort ends up burning more energy than it provides because the sledges have to work harder to haul it. And it's not just one meal's worth of extra if you set too high a calorific or protein quantity per meal. It's uniformly extra across the meals packed for the entire trail journey, quickly multiplying up to significantly more difficult sledge pulling than physiological requirements necessitate. If you can establish the absolute minimum sustainable ration and provide it for the exact number of days the party will spend on trail, you've done them a huge favour of minimising the weight they haul, even if you might struggle to convince their rumbling stomachs of the merit of that favour. The simple solution is to avoid man-hauling sledges in any circumstances, but that's a luxury position I can take in an era of skidoos and twin otters. Unable to source a sledge meter in the rush to bring the expedition together, Ashton improvised with the mechanisms available and devised a workable solution using a mechanical ship's log device he had in his box of useful things such wondrous humans always seem to possess. Days of low wind saw Ma drilling his team in skiing, sledging and making and striking camp until everyone expected to depart the island could hold their own on trail. During a break between slogs, partway up the upper slopes of Vinca Island, Davies decided to practice making an emergency snow shelter. The style he opted for involves cutting long slabs of neve from a pit and turning them so they form a roof over the excavation, the long axis of the slab crossing the narrow axis of the hole. Around four feet down, he saw a black spot appear beneath his spade. At first, he thought it a stone, but the way the light fell into it without any reflection gave him pause. Closer examination showed the snow around the black shape falling through it. His emergency snow shelter cut most of the way through a crevasse bridge over a vast empty space, and he removed himself from the newly thinned floor holding him above the darkness with alacrity. Inspired by Davy's emergency snow shelter, Mac tried making igloos just behind the hut, the polar record laid out the basic method, and with practice, Mackenzie found a weatherproof structure took around an hour to complete. Mac used every spare moment, other than in igloo construction, in collecting lichen samples. Already at the back end of a doctoral thesis on lichen biogeography as a proxy for continental movement, the opportunity to expand on the collections made by the British Graham Land expedition inspired a fervour in Mackenzie that other Bransfield House residents found infectious, and everyone became more knowledgeable about that arcane symbiotic union than most of the rest of the world, off the back of the ensuing general enthusiasm for the organisms. Eric Back cited Mac as the best botanist to head south since Joseph Hooker, and remarked about the capacity for this tall but otherwise unassuming scientist to foster enthusiasm for lichens among the least likely amateur lichenologists. Mackenzie also conducted investigations of light penetration into surface snow by digging tunnels into snowbanks until entirely in the dark, then scraping upward until light showed through the tunnel ceiling. At that point, a ruler thrust upward revealed the critical depth figure, 
revealing sufficient light penetrated 23 inches of snow to sustain mosses. The social milieu of Bransfield House wasn't all sweetness and lichens, though. Taylor didn't respect Ma much, towing the military hierarchy line, but otherwise resenting the inefficiencies and foibles he perceived in his senior. The Canadian also took exceptions to Farrington, whom he thought lazy, Back, whom he thought easily led into laziness by Farrington, and Berry, whom he considered a gossipy old besom, though even the prickly tailor couldn't fault Berry's skill at feeding them with large volumes of hot food of consistently high quality and engaging variety. Taylor thought Davies energetic but talentless and therefore the energy expended only made more work for others in repairing his mistakes. As we'll see later, Taylor wasn't without his own critics, so take his assessments with a pinch of salt. Something I don't question is Taylor's disquiet over Mars' alcohol intake. Mariners contend toward hard drinking. Scotsmen contend toward hard drinking. Lonely men with a lot on their minds contend toward hard drinking. Ma constituted the perfect storm of pre-existing conditions, and I suspect Taylor wouldn't have felt confident to remark on the matter if Ma's alcohol consumption wasn't common knowledge. Berry's praises as cook weren't confined to Taylor. While the military vittles of tinned meats and dried vegetables didn't extend to great variety, the chief steward made use of local game to great effect in subsidising their larder and extending the menu. Carcasses brought south from Stanley went off in the unexpectedly warm late summer months and served the skewers and giant southern petrels more so than the expedition, but four Weddell seals were killed and expertly butchered, offering small quantities of much-savoured meat Berry eked out through the winter months. He's also the first Antarctic cook I've read of, able to make shags a delicacy. Anyone hungry enough might eat a cormorant, but I think it's a mark of an expert chef that someone can take that oily, salty bird and make it something anyone might ask for a second time. Base A celebrated Midwinter's Day with a lion, a ski jaunt around the penguin rookery, and a big feed. During the evening entertainments, Farrington rushed in to share news from the north. Ma's wife just gave birth to their second child and first son. On the 18th of July, confident that anyone interested already worked out where the Tabaran bases lay, the Royal Navy released Farrington and Hawkins from the necessity to encrypt their transmissions, easing the workload in every aspect of their daily routine. In spite of the complexity of the encryption and decryption process, only one slip made it past Farrington's careful eye, and it seemed a propitious one in the eyes of the Royal Navy personnel. Instead of the allotted 30 gallons of rum Navy regulations permitted for a party of their size, 300 gallons turned up next summer, though Farrington never felt sure if the error lay in a misread in Back and Davies' notes, mapping requisitions necessary to keep the operation running the following year, or his own encryption, or someone else's decryption, or just a big softie at the naval depot feeling sorry for the remotest British sailors anywhere in the world at that moment. On the 24th of July, the sun shone on Base A once more. A brief recap on local names, as the multiple layers may cause confusion. 
Bransfield House formed the nucleus of Base A, established on Goodyear Island, lying in Port Lockroy, which you'll also sometimes hear me pronounce as Lockroy, because while it was named after a Scotsman, it was named after that Scotsman by Frenchmen, using French pronunciation. Base B comprised buildings of the Hectoria Whaling Station on the shores of Whalers Bay, part of the larger body of water of Port Foster, itself the flooded caldera of Deception Island, which forms part of the South Shetlands. Updates to come when Tabarin enters its second year and expands its area of operations. On the 18th of September, with Ma and Davies pulling one sledge, and Taylor and Mackenzie the other, the first trail party departed Base A for Vinca Island. While everyone kept their skiing fitness up as much as winter conditions allowed, the trail party found the first few miles, comprising steep grades, hard going, seeing all four sledges haul one sledge up before returning downhill for the other, and sometimes hauling the empty sledges to height and returning for the individual sledge tanks in a protracted series of slogs. Poor weather saw the sledges return to the hut for the first four nights of their traverse. Ashton and Back joined the trail party on the 22nd to help push up to the thousand foot pass, affording access to the island's interior. Steep ice cliffs indicated careful navigation in foggy weather and crevasses, and caused a lot of concern and some near misses. Shortly after Back and Ashton turned back for the hut, the sledges encountered troublesome ground, the snow surface littered with large blocks of ice that impeded progress. Mackenzie casually speculated that these ice boulders might have fallen from the great glacial wall above them. Everyone paused and looked up at the gravity threat overhead and redoubled their efforts to cross the remaining space. But with impeccable timing, the hanging glacier let loose. I'll hand the narrative to Mackenzie, writing in The Secret South. Quote, Must be from upstairs. Taff and I saw some hanging glaciers in this face from the other side last Tuesday when we... My sentence remained unfinished. I was caught back by a sharp jolt as the harness trace tightened, and I turned to see Taylor, stiffened in his tracks, staring up into the weaving fog around the rock face a thousand feet above our heads, his eyes filled with a curious expression of fascinated attention which I had never observed in them before. Elijah must have looked upwards like that when the still, small voice came through on Mount Horeb. The delayed reaction realisation, so beloved of early screen comics, struck us all at the same moment after a few seconds of standing there, and without a spoken word, we began with one accord to travel onwards as fast as we could, straining desperately on the harness traces, towards the far side of the block-encumbered slope. It was inevitable. Hanging glaciers carved probably only a few times each day, and this was one of those times. First, a sharp report like a cannon being fired, the echo almost immediately drowned by the swelling peal of rumbling thunder from above, incessant and every second increasing in volume until the eardrums were stunned by the supercharge of sound. Our heads jerked upwards and we beheld thousands of tons of ice and snow hurtling down through the fog like a slowly descending white curtain. For some time, probably only a second or two, we stood motionless in our harnesses, gazing upwards, fascinated at the destruction coming down to overwhelm us. The white curtain dropped with ever-increasing velocity, with bouncing and hurtling ice blocks 
dimly seen in its midst, as through a cloud of steam. The noise was like the shriek of a locomotive issuing from a tunnel. They turned to run clear of the path of destruction, coming up short as their sledges refused to turn in accord with the sudden change of direction. Cold, stiffened fingers struggled at harnesses, but gave up as the thundering apocalypse bore down on them. As one, they lay flat and hoped for the best. Ma described a calm, abstract line of thought that at any moment the killing blow would strike his head, wondering if it would hurt. Impressive as the experience was, the avalanche proved smaller than that which littered the ground around them, and while covered in snow that filled every crease and orifice, the large, life-ending boulders never arrived. They dusted themselves off as best they could, and double-timed one sledge out from under what suddenly earned the name Thunder Glacier. Late in the day, and badly shaken by their experience, Ma ordered a return to the hut, rather than hauling up the second sledge and pitching camp. The following day, he and Davies fabricated quick-release mechanisms for the sledging harnesses, something you could operate with one cold hand in place of the buckles that saw the team unable to unburden themselves the previous day. On the 24th, they set out again, hauling the second sledge up to the first and making their first camp a few miles on. Two weeks of blizzards pinned them there, and it's fortunate, or perhaps good judgement, that Ma paired the prickly tailor with the patient and equable Mackenzie as tent partners, or I might now be recounting the first known murder in Antarctica. Cigarette consumption increased and supplies dwindled. Ma fashioned a pipe out of a piece of a ski pole, a broken thermometer and sticking plaster to eke out the remaining tobacco, adding a new column to my list of things the nicotine devotee will get up to when facing shortages. A brief window of calm allowed Taylor and Mackenzie some time to take angles and for Ma and Davies to ski back to the depot to collect a primer stove to replace one not running well. They also found some mail the hut residents brought up in the interim, and Ma gratefully received the news that Governor Cardinal would once more support the use of the Fitzroy to establish a base at Hope Bay the following summer. On the 7th of October, the weather cleared and Taylor resumed surveying and panoramic photography. Mac found some lichens 1,200 feet above mean sea level and thriving in spite of facing into the prevailing winds. Thirsty and two miles from camp, Mac set a light to a tuft of the stuff and used the resulting heat to melt a cup of water, slaking their thirst and demonstrating the landscape could yield some jewels if you really felt desperate enough to experiment. On the 9th, they struck camp and hauled their sledges back to the depot at the Luigi Glacier in two separate trips, hauling the sledge carrying the camping gear onto the Channel Glacier and stopping for the night, returning to collect the surveying gear the following morning. After visiting the depot to collect jam and tea, Davies and Ma returned with further good news, arrived via radio and conscientious hut residents. The committee wrangled the charter of an expedition-specific sealer, the Newfoundlander, Eagle, to send goods from the UK, and dogs would join them at Hope Bay in the coming summer, a huge relief to the four men cursing the previously lauded as noble practice of man-hauling. The message, already a week old, requested urgent response, so Ma skied for the hut 
sending Blythe out to take his place in harness and expecting to return ere long. Ma found the hut transformed by a spring cleaning initiative kicked off by Farrington and expected the William Scoresby to arrive with Flett, whose command role at Deception Island would fall to Sub-Lieutenant Alan Reese, Hawkins and Matheson at the end of the month in order to carry himself and his Deception Island counterparts north for a conference with Governor Cardinal. Base A would remain occupied with Sub-Lieutenant Gordon Lockley, a colleague of Mackenzie's at the British Museum, heading south to take command at Goodyear Island. Additional surveyors, Sub-Lieutenant David James, MBEDSC, and Captain Victor Russell of the Royal Engineers, would also join Tabarin to expand the exploratory capacity, and marine biologist, Captain Freddie Marshall of the Royal Electrical and Mechanical Engineers, would come south in charge of a contingent of Newfoundland sled dogs, having been aided in their selection by Ted Bingham of BGLE notoriety. Likely Marshall's charges would have comprised a much lesser tranche of canine pulling power without Bingham's assistance, as the best dogs tended to disappear into the Arctic hinterland any time an expedition came looking to make purchases. Bingham's prior experience in Labrador offered valuable insights into taking the procurement process slowly, he and Marshall engaging a Moravian missionary to aid in negotiations where Marshall might have come away, as happened to Cecil Mears in purchasing Manchurian ponies, with a great load of crocs. This investment of personnel and resources in Tabarin's second year felt heartening to those in the South. Clearly, the war was going well, which is an unusual phrase but one that describes the situation neatly, and the original ambitions for Operation Tabarin at Hope Bay still lay within Mars Reach. I can't find any reference to it in my books, but I'm pretty sure some bureaucrats in the colonial office helped push Tabarin up a notch as they realised how building on Mars' initial success and establishing a permanent British presence in Antarctica, in addition to reinforcing the Falkland Islands' dependencies as a British territory in the eyes of the world and in the face of sustained Argentine protest, would help demonstrate the validity of British Antarctic territorial claims in the face of German and American efforts in Antarctica in the immediate lead-up to the start of the war in Europe. Meanwhile, on Vinke, the team towed the survey sledge to a vantage point overlooking the Numaya Channel. They met Blythe at the campsite when they went back for a second sledge, but poor weather precluded further hauling, so they settled down to a novel feed of the relative freshies Blythe brought up and caught up on Base A News. Crook weather saw them lie up on the 14th, and Taylor rigged the 1940s equivalent of a Bluetooth speaker to the peak of his tent. One of the headphone speakers in a biscuit tin reverberated enough for everyone to hear the broadcasts tuned in on the radio set. It sounded a bit tinny, but you expect that when the resonator is made of tin. When I get the time machine working again, I'll send them some iced coffee episodes to help pass the time and to let them know how they get on. Ma sent a message up via Back and Farrington that he requested the William Scoresby collect him as soon as possible in order for direct conference with Governor Cardinal regarding the coming summer program. Blythe would remain with the sledges for the duration of the foray. On the 17th, they sledged over a hard, steep ice fascia. The sledge wouldn't track, continually threatening to fall away below the haulers, so Davies and Blythe steadied the runners from behind, while Taylor and Mackenzie hauled out in front. Davies nearly lost his footing, 
and clutching Blythe for support, nearly dragged the whole shebang off the track, a short journey that would end in the sea if one of the crevasses didn't end it sooner. Davies began using a shovel as the guide to the runners, walking it forward to the foremost downhill edge of the sledge and planting it hard against the runner. Taylor and Mackenzie hauled the unit forward, the shovel acting as an ersatz rail, until they ran out of runner. Davies then walked the shovel forward to the front of the sledge and repeated the process. Slower than the usually slow man-hauling process, but less fatal than the alternative. Another day of angles and plane table work, and the party headed for the hut, depoting one sledge and a load of camping gear to speed their journey and to allow an easier start to any subsequent continuation of their work. They reached the hut on the evening of the 18th, having shed weight and increased their speed at every depot and staging point on the way back. After 24 days on trail, Taylor felt disappointed by the darty yield. Unable to sight the coasts below most of the area traversed, any map he generated of Vinca Island must constitute a rough approximation, and while the angles on distant objects, set against regular star-fixed positions and radio time signals, constituted more precise information, the surface control points their efforts constituted might have yielded orders of magnitude more work for the sake of a single, well-appointed survey aircraft. Captain Marchese's first attempt to reach Goodyear Island saw the William Scoresby repelled by a dense ice barrier, so Ma still resided at Bransfield House when the sledges arrived back. With the thaw slowly showing its effect on the sea ice around the island, Ma set himself to collecting, cataloguing and preserving the local marine biology, surprising everyone with the high species richness and biomass operating below the water, contrasting so starkly as it did with the dearth of both above water. In addition to expressing surprise and fascination at the variety of life below the tide, Mackenzie records in The Secret South, a most endearing, to me, vignette of Mar at work. Dow Scott, looking every bit the mariner and fewer bits the marine biologist. Quote, At intervals, purely for his private satisfaction and without regard for the limited understanding of his hearers, he would suddenly ejaculate an impromptu stanza of great originality and mainly biological content, perhaps not conveying any fathomable scientific information, but nevertheless couched in terms of unmistakable erudition, combined with a sense of rhythm and almost orgiastic climax, Kiplingesque with Gilbertian felicity, like this. And taking the first polyploid that chanced to come to hand, he rounded up the lumen of the epithelial gland. End quote. In addition to the qualities Mackenzie already noted, I find the stanza vaguely threatening in the manner I find almost everything said to me with an Abedonian accent excitingly frightening. If someone speaks to me with a Glaswegian accent, I just turn and run, because a type 2 error in such circumstances doesn't bear thinking about. A Glaswegian told me he was going to give me a buttery once, and I didn't stick around to find out if that was a form of regular or sexual assault. I know a number of biologists who compose verse as they work, and my bookshelves feature tomes on annelid taxonomy and general geology, featuring similarly apt and accurate poetic offerings from the authors. I think there's a dot to join somewhere. I recall reading, in Scientific American or similar, that a tendency to compulsively seek puns can serve as an early warning symptom for a form of mental illness. At least three of my colleagues who read that same article 
spent as much time as I did trying to turn the article headline into a pun. Whether or not the poetic allusions to evolutionary biology are similarly compulsive, Mac's anecdote increased my spatially and temporally disjointed crush on the Scotsman. Where the snowy sheathbills never left the island, surviving the winter eating the expedition as shit, the penguins began returning in mid-November and set up nests, leading to forays to collect surplus eggs. The penguins only need one, after all. Berry boiled them up, but the red yolk, clearly visible through the translucent blue albumen, put a few people off their googie. On the 18th, Mackenzie led Blythe and Ashton to Vinkia Island to collect birds for the British Museum, but got distracted by all the lichens revealed by the late spring melt. Mackenzie recounts in The Secret South an encounter with the local wildlife. Quote, I suddenly came face to face with one of the largest land animals of the Antarctic continent, and for a moment stood undecided whether to flee or to face up to it. Belgica Antarctica was its name, and it stood at least one-eighth of an inch high to its shoulder. It was a wingless gnat, blackish in colour, peculiar to this continent. No bloodsucker, but a blameless browser among the tufts of moss and lichen during its brief existence of one Antarctic summer. End quote. Blythe took his misting goggles off for a few minutes, but those few minutes let in enough UV light to cause severe snow blindness. Mackenzie applied boric acid from the first aid box, but the following morning, the intense pain, made worse by any light reaching his eyes, rendered Blythe entirely useless on the steep slopes. Ashton and Mackenzie placed him on the sledge and towed him back toward Goodyear Island. From the heights, they spied that the sea ice between them and home blew out, but keen eyes at the hut spied them and their trussed-up passenger in turn, and put out the boat as the trio made their descent to the newly exposed shore. Blythe spent six days with his eyes bandaged as the sunburnt tissues healed. His next excursion saw him climbing a glacier on Vinca Island, goggles firmly in place, with Dr. Back to make a report on the ice conditions in the Gerlash Strait for Captain Marchese. I think it was during this outing that Blythe injured his hand in a fall from his skis. Gerlash all clear, though. The William Scoresby started its second attempt to reach Base A, departing Base B on the morning of the 6th of December. Excitement waxed but then waned as the ship hove to in Dolman Bay, held up by a storm, then waxed again as the storm abated and Captain Marchese got underway once more. The William Scoresby entered the bay late that evening and Ma welcomed Marchese, Flett, Hawkins and Matheson, where everyone else welcomed the mailbags, oranges and fresh veg. Seven months back catalogue of correspondence saw the hut silent in spite of the new arrivals. The following morning, a dentist and dentist's assistant went ashore with a dentist's chair and a pedal-powered dentist's drill to check that everyone sidled over the low bar set by British dental standards. Falkland Island's postmaster, John Bound, began cancelling the voluminous backlog of correspondence and philatelists' favours accumulated at Base A through the winter. Following in the trotter prints of Toby and Miss Piggy, the pig arrived at Port Lockroy. The pig never received any other name, where is the Base A residents were, of humanising an animal intended to provide them with a welcome supply of small goods after a period of fattening up, but the new company, and overall porcine intelligence and precociousness, 
saw her become a welcome addition to the Goodyear Island contingent, with Davies in charge of her care. Mackenzie received 400 weight of Falkland Island soil and a range of Falkland Island's plant and lichen specimens, and I dearly want to know they arrived in Wardian cases, because my friend and mentor Jackie Kerrin recently incorporated these devices into her Kamishi by storytelling catalogue and wrote a children's book mapping an incredible chapter in scientific reasoning and experiment, The Amazing Case of Dr. Ward. The botanical treasure trove afforded her an opportunity to test ideas that the weather at Goodyear Island might just afford a brief growing season in which to provide freshies to base A, and to run some experiments on lichens transposed to unaccustomed conditions. The experiments didn't go well, and all the plants were dead in less than a year. With no roots to bind it in place, the soil in Mackenzie's experimental plots blew out to sea. While Ma headed north for his conference, Blythe returned to Stanley to receive x-rays to his injured hand, and Hawkins departed Deception Island due to appendicitis. Flett stayed on at Bransfield House to make a more complete geological survey than his brief previous visit afforded. Taylor took charge of Base A in Ma's absence. Boat forays to Dumio Island and other smaller outcroppings occupied the lead-up to Christmas, Flett geologising at every opportunity. On nearby Casabianca Island, they found the can Charcot raised as a message cache for Lieutenant Irizar aboard the Uruguay in 1905. Christmas Day saw Berry and Blythe pull out a seven-course wonder, drawing extensively on the wondrous array of freshies brought south from the Falklands. Everyone felt a little awkward that there, in the most isolated human outpost in the world, they enjoyed far better food than anyone in the United Kingdom might expect that day. In mid-January, word arrived from Ma. The expedition would add Base E at Stonington Island to its occupations. Not only was Britain backing Ma and Co.'s efforts as the toehold of a permanent national presence in Antarctica, it set its sights on establishing that presence below the Antarctic Circle. Oh, what's that, Argentina? 40 years on site at Laurie Island? Yes, that's cute. Well done, you. We've been living below the Antarctic Circle since, well, February. But that's real Antarctica. Not some island north of the Antarctic banana belt, don't you know? <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm afraid I was very, very drunk. In the first pass, Back and Farrington starred for entertainment. Foe decoded the message as placing the existing Base A residence at Peter I Island, all concerned feeling concerned at this new order of magnitude in isolation and difficulty, until Back and Farrington couldn't hold their laughter in. Some people bang on and on about British humour, but a lot of it's just slapstick, lying to people, and the rest of the comedic premises are about jam, for some reason. Still, Operation Tabarin clearly impressed some people at home and looked set to expand. Taylor would lead at Hope Bay, with Flett as 2IC. Ma would lead at Base E, joined there by Matheson, the new surveyors, James and Russell, and additional newcomer, Marshall. A new, smaller team, would continue occupying Base A. The expedition would erect a new hut on Coronation Island in the South Orkneys, though no one would establish occupation there just yet. 
the Newfoundland dog teams would divide between Base D at Hope Bay and Base E at Stonington. Meanwhile, Captain Robert Shepard sailed south through the Atlantic aboard the Eagle with the new personnel and materials. The former sealer stank of seal blubber as the tropics worked their heat on the ground in lipids no one much noticed when the ship remained in the northern cold, and worked herself loose as the voyage progressed, requiring repairs at each port of opportunity Shepard reached, the transit steadily falling behind schedule. When the Eagle reached Montevideo to collect new Tabaran personnel and the Newfoundland doggos, Captain Shepard found they'd already departed aboard the Fitzroy during one of its regular ferryings. At Stanley, the shipwrights recorked the hull and braced the midship's bunkers with steel ties, in preparation for the vagaries of the Southern Ocean. David James recorded the cramped and overweight stowing aboard of gear, dogs and men in That Frozen Land. Quote, she looked like an untidy Christmas tree. On forecastle head were tethered the dogs. The deep well deck ford was filled with lumber, anthracite, beds, benches, ladders, and yet more dogs. On either side of the bridge, a pound had been built, each heaped high with coal. Athwart the afterhatch, and far too big for convenience of passage, lay the scow, with lumber piled high around it and dogs inside, while after, tied around the emergency steering wheel, were still more dogs. Four men slept aft, one on the saloon table and the rest under the forecastle head. None of this conformed with Board of Trade regulations, but then none of the base leaders were official inspectors. End quote. On the 25th of January, Farrington received word of the Eagle departing Stanley in company with the Fitzroy, which towed an oil barge from which the William Scoresby could bunker fuel and extend its Antarctic range. Two days after leaving the islands, the ship sailed into heavy weather, and Captain Shepard fell down a companionway and broke some ribs. Strapped up as best as Mark could manage, Captain Shepard experienced such great pain as the Eagle approached Deception Island that the William Scoresby departed for Port Lockroy to collect Dr. Back. Dr. Back was on his way north on New Year's Day, and the rest of the Bransfield House residents prepared for departure to stage at Deception Island when the William Scoresby returned in company with the Fitzroy on the 3rd. The arrival of the 25 sled dogs at Whalers Bay spelt the end for the resident pig, which the Huskies tore apart at the first opportunity. The dogs also cleared the beaches of penguins, only those neophobic enough to head to sea in the face of slavering doom, surviving the bloodbath. When news of this northerly porcine disaster reached Base A, Davies felt it better that the pig died peacefully in her sleep and shot her in the head with a pistol, point blank, while she napped in the sunshine. He and Berry butchered the carcass, but no one relished the resulting cuts, no matter how well prepared and cooked, and regardless of the best of intentions that saw the animals sent their way. At Deception Island, Dr. Back ordered Captain Shepard evacuated to Stanley for treatment at the hospital, but Shepard demurred, concerned that his removal must curtail the support provided by the Eagle, there being no other officer of sufficient rank and experience to replace him at his post. He carried on, weakened and in considerable pain, but determined to see the project through. The ships arrived on schedule, returning Ma and bringing the new Base A contingent to their new digs, these being Sub-Lieutenant Lockley, Lather, and new cook Andrew White, 
and carrying new Tabarin members destined for new bases, Russell, James, Marshall and Reese. Among this new contingent, James carried considerable maritime experience and some high latitudes work. As Duncan Cast did before him, James chucked a public school education for life before the mast, serving aboard a foremast merchant vessel in his late teens, but where Cast spoke with an Etonian cadence, James actually did attend Eton. At the outbreak of war, he volunteered for the Royal Navy Volunteer Reserve, serving aboard the destroyer HMS Drake, as she made the final British departure from occupied Europe. He gained experience of pack ice in the Denmark Strait, aboard an armed merchant cruiser, and taking the 2IC slot aboard a motor gunboat. He received the Distinguished Service Cross for courage displayed in an attack on a German convoy off the Netherlands, the engagement resulting in his boat on fire and sinking, and he and his crew abandoning ship. Among the hectic action, six of his crewmates were collected by another motor gunboat, which then ran James over in its rush to get clear. Wounded by enemy shrapnel, badly knocked about by the boat, and drawn from the water by the Germans, he spent almost a year in a prisoner of war camp near Bremen. Four foiled escape attempts didn't deter the man, and his fifth, a magnificent effort in which he disguised himself as a badly burnt Swedish sailor using cosmetics concocted with the limited resources available to a POW, snuck out of the prison, caught a series of five trains to reach Danzig, and then boarded a Finnish ship bound for Stockholm, bribing a stoker to keep him hidden from the ship's officers, Finland still being at war with Russia, by then an ally to Britain. This dedication to and success in escape earned him the MBE, a royally appointed honour as opposed to a military medal, which sounds rather Bill and Teddish to the ears of my cohort, being member of the most excellent order of the British Empire. James joined Naval Intelligence to lecture on escapology, and there came into the opportunity to go surveying in the South. On the 5th of December, the arrival of the William Scoresby and the Fitzroy at Deception Island saw the base aid departees reunited with Blythe, returned from his medical treatment at Stanley. Matheson made the accommodations very accommodating since they'd last visited, and the single berth rooms, each fitted with their own bustion stove, seemed the epitome of luxury. Glaswegian radio man, Tommy Donachie, joined the Base B contingent from service aboard armed merchant cruisers, and Samuel Bonner, a 60-year-old Falklander, joined the small Base B detachment as handyman. The Eagle, smaller in the lazarette than Hoped, couldn't carry all the materials necessary to establish Base D at Hope Bay and Base E at Stonington Island at the same time. With Hope Bay the higher priority, the Base E materials went aboard the oil barge for later transshipment, adding a harrowing extra few PSI to the time pressure already weighing on Mars' mind. He asked the Colonial Secretary, Kenneth Bradley, sailing aboard the Fitzroy, to join him on shore where he convened a meeting with Flett and Taylor. Ma didn't feel he could carry on as leader of Operation Tabarin. He resigned and asked Taylor to step into the role. Taylor accepted and Secretary Bradley got the pertinent signals away to make the shift official, but Taylor felt apprehensive at the idea of establishing Base E without Maher on site as leader. The consensus came that the Stonington Island initiative would wait, allowing all effort to focus on establishing Hope Bay that summer. With his baton thus passed on, 
Ma effectively collapsed. On the 8th of February, Dr. Back described his colleague as experiencing physical and emotional exhaustion and advised evacuation to Stanley at the earliest possible opportunity. The William Scoresby, at Coronation Island, establishing the unmanned facility with the Fitzroy, returned to Deception Island and started its dash north on the 9th. Ma's condition improved on reaching Stanley, and he returned to Britain to rejoin his wife and daughter and to see their son for the first time. On the 11th of February, the Eagle sailed out of Port Forster and headed across the Bransfield Strait for Antarctic Sound. The Plimsoll line two foot below the water, Captain Shepard taking the risk based on Reese's promising Met forecast and the short transit. Captain Shepard called Ashton to the bridge. As one of the most experienced high-latitude mariners, and having visited the Hope Bay site the previous summer, he came as near to an ice pilot as the ship could field. Arriving on the 12th, the bay proved ice-free, this time, and the Eagle anchored and sent the boat ashore at a site immediately named Eagle Cove. While the ship's company hunted seals to keep the dogs fed, the shore party selected a hut site near what Gunnar Anderson named Seal Point 40 years earlier. Hut Cove featured a meltwater stream and sledging access to a glacier leading into the Trinity Peninsula, but tall rock stacks made the seaward approach more difficult than anticipated. Unloading commenced some distance away and required hauling to the site, and the Eagle's motor launch could barely tow the loaded scow in any significant wind the two factors making the transfer a protracted and laborious affair. On Taylor's orders, Mackenzie made the first visit to the stone walls Anderson, Grundon and Deuce used to protect their tent from the wind 40 years earlier, documenting the site photographically and making notes for an official report on one of the few historical sites on that side of the Antarctic continent at that time. The walls stood firm and the site still stank of burnt seal blubber. Artifacts among the penguin guano included the improvised stove and the hammer the Swedes used to stir their penguin hoosh. Ashton erected a temporary galley hut he fabricated of tin sheathing at base A in preparation for the new stint of building activity at base D, allowing Berry to keep the work crew fed and in hot beverages on site. With base E on hold, all 25 dogs went ashore, where they fed themselves and the local penguins. Eventually worked into two dog lines near the hut, the Base D personnel kept them fed almost entirely on local game, largely setting the mode for fids and bass dog food supplies for the decades to come. Bosun aboard the Eagle, a 90-year-old mariner, Tom Carroll, gave a demonstration on how to flense a seal one evening, impressing all present, particularly those who'd attempted the same operation with far less efficiency and results far less impressive, the pelt blubber and meat, remaining intermingled and badly mangled under their untutored hands and less than razor-sharp knives. Tom worked with a proficiency born of a life largely spent sealing in the Arctic. Among Skipper Tom's past adventures, he sailed with Peary in the 1908-1909 attempt on the North Pole. A lot of thought went into arranging the materials aboard the Eagle so that those required for erecting the main huts and a Nissen hut might go ashore in an orderly sequence, and this system worked well, the only oversight being the burial of Berry's cooking utensils deep in the hold, forcing the cook to improvise as the Swedes had done before him. The construction gang slept in Berry's galley, 
but no one found it cosy, and the dearth of British comforts helped propel the construction project at a fair clip. A Nissan hut went up first, then it went down again in a strong wind, then it went up again, missing a four foot wide section of cladding, receiving a tarpaulin in its place. Farrington got the radio working on the 19th, but responses from base B ceased on the 21st. Mysterious. The main hut comprised two of the prefab units side by side, and neared completion toward the end of the month. With the shore party sufficiently set up to fend for themselves, the Eagle headed back to Deception Island on the 1st of March to retrieve a second tranche of materials and stores, and to find out why the radio fell silent. Lather, at Base B, reported hearing Donachy mentioning a fire in a room housing the genset, and Taylor, concerned that the younger man might prove a weak link in sustained communications with the outside world, sent Farrington North to swap him out. Plans to use the Eagle and the William Scoresby to lay depots, any and everywhere sledging and boating parties might find themselves in the coming year, fell apart when the Scoresby, back at the Coronation Island construction project after returning Marta Stanley, required boiler repairs, and the Eagle stripped its windless gears while weighing anchor to depart Hope Bay. Radio silence at Base B was due to the fire Lather received brief notice of. Flames destroyed the main genset and damaged the spare. While the 24-year-old Donachy did repair the spare, Flett deemed Taylor's plan to swap the younger man out with the more experienced Farrington a good'un, to both Farrington and Donachy's dismay. Donachy felt this an adverse judgement of his skills and experience, and Farrington didn't want to sit the winter out at the least interesting of the three sites Operation Tabarin occupied, though he did recognise this contingency as guaranteeing his relief the following summer. Captain Marchese paid the Argentine meteorologists and postmaster a visit at Laurie Island after construction finished at Coronation Island. With their own relief already a week overdue, the residents at Orcadus Station made the British mariners welcome, hosting them on a tour of the facilities and gratefully accepting a gift of a thousand cigarettes and half a hogget carcass, having long run out of meat and, more importantly, tobacco. The senior officer dined aboard the Eagle that evening. The relief ship, Charco, arrived the following morning and things took a turn for the diplomatic. Marchese signalled for the Argentine captain to call on him. His Argentine counterpart didn't reply, likely unwilling to recognise the official British presence as to do so might carry some political weight in the eyes of either ship's home government. I guess you can afford to be aloof and uppity if you've got a ready supply of meat and tobacco at your back. Captain Marchese collected Flett and Donachy from Deception Island, getting them ashore at Hope Bay on the 6th of March, then carried on to Base A with the new handyman from the Falklands, John Biggs, before heading to Stanley and more routine duties once more. The Eagle made another delivery of stores and materials and personnel, in this case, Lieutenant Russell to Hope Bay, and anchored up. Everyone moved into the living quarters hut on or around the 8th of March, the fit-out mirroring the successful approach applied at Base B. Slightly larger than Brantsfield House and housing half as many residents again, Eagle Hut quickly received the homely touches necessary to achieve the accustomed standard of British cosiness. Another brief digression on the multiple layers of names to ensure no one gets lost in the nomenclature. 
Eagle Hut form the nucleus of Base D and lay on Seal Point on the shores of Hope Bay, a small inlet on the tip of the Trinity Peninsula, itself an eastward extension of the Antarctic Peninsula region known as Graham Land. Much of the Trinity Peninsula comprises igneous rock, impressive volcanic plugs pressed into flat-topped mesas when fiery heat from below encountered massive glacial masses above. Pockets of marine sediments isostatically rebounded above sea level reveal well-preserved pockets of fossils dotted about the region. On the 17th of March, gale-force winds saw the Eagle dragging anchors, even with the engine at full speed ahead, and then breaking free of the anchors altogether. An iceberg loomed out of the blizzard and took the bowsprit and a large section of the forecastle with it, letting the waters washing over the bow in the increasing chop into the ship faster than the pumps could counter. Unable to see beyond the bulwarks, or make sufficient speed to heave to, and likely to increasingly lose rudder authority as the ship filled with sea, Captain Shepard gave the order to beach the ship at wherever anyone thought Eagle Cove might lie. Radio operator Squires got a message off to the Eagle house party, requesting they head to the shore with hauling lines to aid in a rescue and salvage in the apparent incipient wrecking. As the shore-based team began hauling their sledges shoreward, for a likely grim time pulling corpses from the water, a second radio message arrived. The pumps were gaining ground as the ship came off holding its head to wind. Captain Shepard was weighing beaching on a known shore to risking a transit north with the forecastle torn open. In an unusual move, Captain Shepard brought his crew together and canvassed their opinions. Everyone agreed that the beaching option equated to certain death for all involved, where running north with a following sea constituted uncertain death and might equate to survival. Captain Shepard gave the order and the Eagle started its egress from the bay and then north through Antarctic Sound, then across the Bransfield Strait and into the Scotia Sea, carrying little fuel or fresh water and still laden with two-thirds of the material slated for Hope Bay, including a second Nissen hut, replacement corrugated iron for completing the first Nissen hut, and large quantities of coal and food. No one at Base D expected to ever see the ship or its crew again. The following day, Donachie received the cheering word from Farrington at Base B that the Eagle broadcast their survival through the worst of the storm that night, the hole in the bow receiving a tarpaulin patching that seemed to be holding, and the ship was making its way northward, though a voyage normally knocked over in three days took a full week this time. While the ship's unexpectedly truncated stay left the Base D team short on variety, they possessed plenty of food and all they needed for a thorough season of sledging projects after the winter dark passed. Though with no boats landed, they wouldn't be heading to any of the offshore sites until after the sound froze reliably solid. While the ship didn't carry large supplies of dog food, it was hoped the depot-laying voyage to the islands around the eastern side of the Trinity Peninsula might yield the hundred seals estimated as necessary to keep the huskies through the winter. The Adelies and then the Gentoos departed local shores, and seals became scarce while James and Russell only had 25 carcasses in hand. Keeping the larger-than-expected contingent of dogs fed on a smaller-than-expected larder of dog food proved the challenge until the seals began returning in the spring. On the 7th of May, everyone got their first taste of dog driving. Marshall, who received some tutelage from Ted Bingham, was the most knowledgeable on the matter, but moving stores the mile from Eagle Cove to the Nissen Hut 
still constituted his first actual experience at the handlebars. Davies noting that the dogs, already trained in by their Inuit breeders, knew the drill better than any of the monkeys wielding the whips. Radio news of Victory in Europe Day on the 8th of May prompted a boozy party. Toward the end of May, four dogs chased a seal resting up offshore and drifted out to sea when the sea ice, weakened by a warm spell, loosened and blew out. James rued their deaths and ended his habit of letting the dogs off their lines to hunt their own food around the bay. More dogs died to injuries from fights and misadventures, and one died of a heart attack during a fight, though puppies arising from multiple litters eventually made the numbers up, though not in time to aid in the first sledging project. Keeping dogs on site caused an unexpected complication for the meteorologist, as the post holding the Campbell Stokes sunshine recorder, being the only freestanding vertical structure for many miles, received regular soakings in K9P, which is like WD-40, only not really. A Campbell Stokes sunshine recorder is an elegant and ingenious device in which a crystal sphere focuses available sunlight onto a card held in place behind it. The times at which the sun shines most brightly show as the most charred on the card, where overcast leaves a corresponding unburnt stretch across the time increments printed on the card. All well and good, so long as the light path isn't blocked or refracted by a layer of frozen dog piss, and the card isn't made one with the metal backing plate by that same fluid freezing it in place. Unable to shift the device without disrupting the data series, the men took to fashioning increasingly medieval dog repellent mechanisms to keep the micturation and the meteorology separate. One evening, Dr. Back's meteorological rounds presaged an unearthly experience and an incredible demonstration of Antarctica's power in quick succession. Looking to Mackenzie's book, The Secret South, once again, and quoting from it extensively, again, because it's awesome. At 6.30pm, Doc donned his naval greatcoat, thrust his feet into sea boots, pulled his balaclava helmet well down over his collar, and set off for his meteorological round, swinging in one hand a buzzing clockwork contraption known as a psychrometer, the function of which, if I remember rightly, was to record the relative humidity of the air. Five minutes later, he returned to the galley, replaced his instrument on its hook, and started to divest himself with a thoughtful and serious expression on his face. Snow stopped, Doc? He nodded, and a moment later said, Go outside and look at the moon. Considerably surprised, we crowded out through the doorway and stood shivering in the snow outside, looking up at a sight which none of us had ever seen before. Paraceline is, I believe, the correct scientific name for it. Mock moons is the more common and expressive term by which I had previously heard of the phenomenon. The sky in the zenith was quite clear, and up above our heads there was the bright half-moon, forming the centre of a complex system of arcs and halos of brighter or fainter light. Two concentric rings ran right around it, and the inner of these was touched tangentially by two broken arcs, one on each side. In addition, the whole figure was bisected by a broad band of fainter light, obviously a segment of a very large arc, for its curvature was slight and its ends passed out of view behind the mountain masses of inky black cloud which were rising from the horizon on all sides. At each of the six points where the arcs intersected could be seen a faint, but quite distinct, image of the moon itself. Such unaccustomed prodigies of nature 
when seen for the first time, invariably give rise to a certain feeling of uneasiness and dismay, even though the physical operation of the underlying factors may be perfectly clearly understood. It almost seemed to us as if the moon, deprived of other means of communication, had surrounded itself with all these cryptic circles and watery figments of its own substance in a mute but frenzied gesture of warning in the face of some imminent catastrophe, much as a person on the other side of a soundproof plate glass window might try to convey to you, by a wealth of extravagant and horrific gestures, that something standing behind you was lifting its bony knuckles to encircle your throat. Inside the galley, Doc gave a low whistle of amazement. Not very much over 686 millimetres, he said, looking round to all of us in turn, as if he suspected that we might be personally responsible for this phenomenal fall in the barometric pressure. 686 steaming millimetres. That's about the lowest pressure ever recorded in all time. You only get pressure as low as this when you're right in the eye of a cyclone. But we don't get cyclones down here. You sure of that, Doc? Well, yes, but, Chippy, we're in for something. I don't know exactly what it is, but if I were you, I'd do something to strengthen this galley, if that's at all possible. The only thing we can do is to pass lines over the roof and fix them to something heavy at starboard and port, Ashton replied. There's nothing we can do about the bulkheads if we're in for a blow. Wait, though, yes, I could jam some of those heavy balks from Deception up against the leeward side, if I knew what bearing the wind was going to come from. You know what side it will blow, Doc? Doc shrugged his shoulders. Can't say a thing as yet, Chippy. It's still perfectly calm outside. Not the least breath of wind. It's quite possible it may not come to anything after all. But I don't know. This low pressure. The mock moons. Those pitch black clouds rising up all round on the horizon. There's something on the way. Not much doubt about that. Several of us went outside to help Chippy bear up the heavy balks of lumber from the shore, and hastily to fill some empty wooden boxes with stones. Three lengths of stout rope were then thrown over the roof of the galley and made fast by the ends to the weighted boxes on each side. The timbers were laid outside the door, ready to be used immediately for shoring up the walls from outside once the direction of the wind became manifest. There was a curious heaviness or should I say, lightness, in the air, and breathing seemed difficult, as if half the oxygen had been used up. Even the brief exertion of carrying the lumber up from the shore made us gasp for breath and left us running with perspiration. These things having been done, there was nothing further we could do but go inside and wait to see what would happen. Tom Berry and Johnny Blythe, after clearing away the supper table and washing the cooking pots, brought out a greasy pack of cards and started slapping them out on the table for one of their interminable and vociferous games of cribbage. Doc Back, Freddie Marshall and I, seated at the other end of the table, embarked on one of those discursive conversations, apropos nothing in particular, which might range all the way from Cole Porter to Kierkegaard and then back again. Taylor, impassive, lay on his back in his lower berth, his head propped up on a pile of books, calmly puffing on his pipe and leafing through the Antarctic pilot. I knew him well enough to know that he too was seriously worried about our situation, but with the realisation that at the moment there was nothing more that we could do about it. It was nearly 11 o'clock at night before anything happened to give us some inkling of what we had to expect. 
During the preceding hours, the black cloud banks had mounted the sky steadily from all sides, and finally fused in the zenith, to form a continuous gigantic cupola, in which the earth and all upon it was enclosed in a blackness as of the pit. Even the blanket of snow on the ground did little to relieve the unusual darkness. Then the wind came at last. Not an open, angry, rushing, blustering gale, the hearty wind that roars through the beech forests on the English downs in early spring, but a furtive, complaining, spiteful movement of the air, which moaned and hissed and sighed, now outside the window, now at the door, as though it were quietly seeking out, with invisible fingers, the weak spots in our armour, so that it might later return in the full panoply of its might, and then destroy us. Through the window, in the radius of the lamplight, we could see the fingers of the wind now made manifest by the fine snow which it carried with it. The white tendrils flickered over the window panes in an ominous caress. A slight lull, as if the forces outside were holding a brief consultation, and then they returned to the attack with colours flying. The voice of the wind ceased to be a moan and intensified itself into a steady shriek. The drift now raged and danced over the window panes like white fire. At the same time, the temperature fell so quickly, even inside the building, that Doc thought for a moment that the bulb had broke off his thermometer and the mercury was draining out of it. I picked up an iron pot lifter that was lying on the floor in the corner of the galley, and it stuck to my fingers as if it had been smeared with glue. Fine snow sifted unceasingly into the hut through every unseen crack and crevice, and commenced to pile itself up along the framework and between the floorboards in miniature snowdrifts. Even the air inside was filled with tiny falling ice crystals, which had been forced in through the finest cracks in the roof and walls by the intensity of the wind. To go outside now would be suicide, and quite a quick death at that. It would be like plunging into a raging cataract of ice-cold water, and the powdery drift would be forced instantaneously into your eyes, ears, mouth and nostrils, right down into your lungs in a matter of seconds. Fortunately, we had all the supplies we needed inside, including eight or nine bags of coal stacked up at one end of the galley. It looked as though we should probably need plenty of it, as the stove, although closed up completely and with the damper pushed right in, was roaring up its red-hot chimney flue like a blast furnace in the intense suction of the draught. Indeed, there was nothing more one could do about it but go to bed and hope for the best. Chippy and Taff had shored up the leeward wall of the galley from the outside with the large bulks of timber, and the three ropes over the roof were weighted down on each side by the wooden boxes containing in all well over a ton of stones. Nevertheless, when I had climbed up into my upper berth, and had wriggled down into my sleeping bag, and lay listening to the fury that was separated from my head by a poorly fastened iron sheet one sixteenth of an inch thick, I was gripped, understandably, by a spasm of cold fear. Nature, which I knew perfectly well was blind and impartial in its operations, took on, in this moment, an amazingly realistic semblance of personality, a much more impressive counterfeit even than the angry speechifying and flashing frenzies of the thunderstorm. It was imitating, in fact, with a fantastic degree of similitude, the maniacal ravings of a homicidal psychopath. That continuous yelling and buffeting of the wind by its very inflections produced in one's mind exactly the same reaction of distress and fear as would an incessant stream of threats and vile abuse poured out upon one by a demented person with that dreadful intensity which happily only the staffs of mental institutions know can be produced by the human throat.
The snow-filled air must have been rushing around and over our galley at a speed of 90 to 100 miles an hour. At least. Picture yourself inside an aeroplane travelling at this speed, and then imagine its fuselage to be constructed not of stout aluminium plates fastened to a steel framework by regular rows of rivets an inch apart, but of loosely overlapping sheets of corrugated iron doubtfully attached to the wooden beams by ordinary wire nails, many of which had missed their mark entirely. Hour after hour I lay listening to the inferno raging on the other side ten inches away from my head. The whole galley was shaking and vibrating like a furniture van driven at top speed over a road full of potholes. Then I heard another sound that made my blood run colder still. It was the rending screech that a nail makes when it is being drawn forcibly out of the wood. I hastily grabbed the flashlight which I kept inside the sleeping bag and focused it on the rafter above my head. The sound was repeated, and this time I distinctly saw the pointed end of the nails retreat about half an inch into the wood. I do not know how long I gazed upwards in fascination at this performance, repeated by one or other of the nails every few minutes during the more particularly intense blasts. It might have been for minutes, or it might have been for hours. Once all the nails had been drawn out of the beam, and the wind got under the loose edge of the corrugated iron sheet, I awoke in complete stillness. The interior of the galley was suffused with a strange greenish light, as if it were lying at the bottom of the sea. The windows were in fact completely buried in solid snow, which filtered out the red and yellow parts of the spectrum of daylight. Tom Berry had just risen and boldly opened the door of the galley. He walked into a solid white wall, on which every joint between the boards and every screw head was faithfully reproduced in reverse, as on a plaster cast. The hut was completely buried in one huge snowdrift. I lay on my back looking up at the nails. Then I commenced to laugh, silently. I laughed until the tears streamed down my face. Those nails, last night. I could have clinched them on the inside. I could have clinched them on the inside. I could have clinched them on the inside. End quote. The storm blew down the latrines and collapsed the gen shed around the generator but Eagle House and the Nissen Hut remained intact, largely because in the calm before the storm, a heavy dump of snow altered the shapes against which the wind worked. The square cross-section of the building provided sufficient windage that without the snow bulwark, the hut may have collapsed and everyone died shortly thereafter. Going to leave Operation Tabarin there for now. We'll round out their story with one more episode. Greetings this time to Steve McRae, an inspiring musician and farmer and friend. Haven't been able to contact her to see if I can get permission to use her song as the fade-out for this episode, but I've been completely enraptured by Phoebe Bridges' song Saviour Complex and the accompanying video directed by Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Both the song and the accompanying visuals tell the most compelling and melancholy stories and they can be taken together or individually. They're both beautiful. I'm just listening over and over again. Take care and appreciate your coffee.